Well, Keystone Church, good morning. My name is Brandon Fisher, lead pastor here at Keystone, and this is week three of our exclusive Keystone Church online experience. Uh, probably like I said last week, I want to share a message from uh, staff at least uh, to be able to say, we miss you. And based on the conversations that I've had uh, with some of you this week, I recognize that it's hard to not be together anymore. And I want to at least um, send some encouragement to you to say thanks for tuning in uh, this morning. Um, We're praying that in the midst of this trial, Uh, that God is still working by his spirit to um, mature us and grow us into more and more of who he desires us to be. Maybe the most difficult part about this season is that we don't know what's actually going to happen next. I mean, the quarantine really only started less than 16 days ago. Uh, And each stage, it, it just seems like things are happening quickly and slowly at the same time. And so, some of the questions that we might be experiencing around this time, we don't have answers for. We don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know what. And during that time of uncertainty, I can say I don't know what God is looking to do with us during this time. Some of the things that staff and elders are praying for would include personal revival. That This might be a season for us as individuals to be able to have areas of our lives that aren't fully trusting in Jesus, be exposed to allow our faith to grow even stronger during this time. It might be church-wide revival, that if enough of the people at Keystone uh, begin to see and sense God in richer and deeper ways during this season, that we might be able to gather together at some point in the future a more robust, a stronger, a happier, more joyful, uh, stable people uh, moving forward. But it could be that God is also working something that we wouldn't even imagine. And that that little line reminds me of a story in Habakkuk. One of the Old Testament prophets, I want to read uh, how he begins his book in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's crying out, God, what are you doing? Uh, I look out around the horizon and it seems like you are just sitting idly while things fall apart. And God answers him in the very next verse, verse 5. God says, Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, I don't know what God is doing in us or in our church or in our world, but it's possible that God is doing a kind of work that we would not even believe if we were told. He goes on uh, at the end of the book. Habakkuk has a change of heart in a way that he responds. The very end in chapter 3, verse 17. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. 
the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. And so Habakkuk has a change of heart throughout his book that he first cries out to God, why are you sitting idly? And by the end of the book, he's rejoicing, not because his circumstances have improved, because his sense, and I'll say this, because his faith has increased. One of the things that God says in the middle of this chapter, uh, chapter two, is the righteous will live by faith. And so we're praying as staff for you during this time. This might be a great season for your faith to grow. Um, moving forward, I want to share with you some of what Keystone is working on to be able to worship together as a family. Um, next week, when you um, gather together in your homes on Sunday mornings, uh, there will be three different ways that you'll be able to worship with us. The first, you'll be able to listen together as a family uh, as you've had the past few weeks. Uh, we'll post the announcements and sermons online to our website or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll be able to listen together as a family. Uh, the next two are very exciting um, because the next one, you'll be able to watch together as a family in your home. We'll be sending out a link for you to be able to see uh, announcements and sermon and uh, our worship team. Uh, we've been working together trying to figure out how we can make it all happen for a Sunday morning, uh, and we think that by next week, uh, you will be able to watch together as a family, and so be on the lookout for that link. The third, and maybe the one I'm most excited about, is we will be able to gather, not physically, but virtually, uh, and have our own family worship time together, uh, and you'll be able to stream a service at 10 o'clock, and uh, at 10 o'clock, we will worship together apart. Uh, we'll be sending out a link for that as well for you to be able to log on. Uh, and there will be a video. Uh, there is a chat feature. We'll be able to speak in real time um, as well as have people present for you to be able to pray and interact with them um, all on a Sunday morning. So we're very excited about those three ways for you to listen, for you to watch, and for you to gather online for, uh, to worship. One announcement that I'll mention, the Explore journals are coming out, and uh, I know that a lot of you have found uh, them to be a precious resource for you to fuel your faith during this season, and as April approaches, uh, you'll need a new Explore book. There are two ways that you can get it. First, uh, you can visit Keystone Church. Uh, if you drive uh, to our facility uh, outside of the youth center, there is a plastic bin uh, full of Explore journals for you to be able to help yourself. The second way that you can do it is you can send an email to info at keystonechurch.org uh, and let us know that you would like to have someone deliver uh, a copy of that Explore journal to you. We had somebody reach out just this week and say, uh, I want to help. I love these Explore journals. I'll do whatever I can to help get those in the hands of people who want them. Uh, so we'll have uh, a special delivery just for you uh, if you send an email to key, uh, info at keystonechurch.org. As far as elder announcements go, uh, if you saw the weekly that came out this past week, the elders uh, want me to be able to address uh, a couple of things. Uh, the first is we as an elder team and as a church understand that uh, there are going to be financial setbacks to uh, you and to Keystone over the next few weeks and months. And so we want to 
prepare for that in two different ways. Uh, as a church, uh, we are preparing by uh, putting our ministries into a discretionary spending freeze. What that means is uh, we want our ministries to, to buckle down uh, and look for ways for us to reduce expenses uh, in the days ahead. The second way that we are preparing for that is our diaconate, our, uh, I'm sorry, our compassion team ministries uh, is preparing for what might be an influx in the number of people who are looking for help. And so I want to extend that to you to be able to say, as you end up experiencing need and are looking for ways um, uh, to help or be helped, uh, we'd encourage you to go to keystonechurch.org slash compassion, uh, keystonechurch.org slash compassion. And there you'll find links uh, to fill out forms to either help uh, or be helped by Keystone. If you saw the weekly that went out, uh, our finances have um, dropped significantly. Giving, I think, was down over 65% over the past two weeks. And so the elders wanted me to, to share with you, there are still ways uh, for you to give if you are able during this time. Uh, you can continue to write checks and mail them uh, to Keystone Church. We're at 6 Peckway Drive, uh, Paradise PA, 17562. I'll have to say that again, 6 Peckway Drive. Six Peckway Ave, uh, Paradise PA, 17562. The, probably the best way for you to find out that address is just to Google us, and you'll, you'll find it that way. The second way to be able to give would be to go online to keystonechurch.org slash give, uh, and you'll be able to create an account to either give a one-time gift or a reoccurring gift online, uh, and you can give with a credit card, a debit card, or set up your banking information um, on that online platform. Third way to give would be to download the Church Center app. And once you create uh, your profile within the Church Center app, you can give with, uh, from within the app uh, very easily. So just to um, conclude, um, there's uh, one more verse in the uh, chapter uh, 2 of Habakkuk that I think will be relevant for us as we look into days of uncertainty. One of the things that we know that God is at work at doing is to spread his glory and fame. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the seas, as the waters cover the sea. And so we're longing for that day, even in the midst of this trial. And uh, as I pray for uh, our offering, as I pray for some of the needs that I'm aware of in the church, uh, I'd love for you to join with me in being able to worship and pray that God would use this time uh, for the advance of his glory. So would you join with me in praying? Father, we, we want to see the vision that Habakkuk saw of your glory filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. We want the world to be flooded with the peace that surpasses understanding. And Lord, for that peace to pass understanding, we understand that there are many people who will need to have your spirit work in their heart, lift the veil from their eyes to be able to see Jesus as precious. And Father, I pray that this would be a season for our own faith to be revived, uh, that your spirit would work in us to, again, be able to trust your goodness and your power and your wisdom and, Lord, your timing. And I pray that, Lord, as our faith swells, that the church's faith might swell. And we might be able to put that faith on display 
in this season where others are filled with fear and panic that we would be resolved that we would be not tied to our circumstances but that our trust in you would be so secure that we'd be able to sacrifice our own comfort our own resources to be able to be a good neighbor to initiate conversations with people that we've not talked to to make sure that people we know and people we don't know are able to uh, survive sometimes physically but sometimes relationally and I pray that you would accomplish much through Keystone in the weeks and months ahead that we might be able to look back on this crisis and see your hand navigating us through to be able to spread the good news of Jesus to be able to love and serve our neighbors and give people reason that when they see our good works, they would praise your name in heaven. And so, Lord, as we give as a church this morning, I pray that you would multiply these resources in ways that would uh, extend our reach and ministry to those in need during this time. And I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you uh, on this virtual way. You're again on the Sunday morning. Uh, look forward to the day we're back together again uh, physically, but grateful for technology that we can do this uh, this way uh, these weeks. And I want to echo some of what Brandon said, just encouraging us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus these days. I think we're going to see in the coming days more and more uh, need it may be us, it may be uh, our neighbors, it may be um, loved ones. And uh, let me just share something that it took me quite a few years to learn. Uh, when my family and I went through some really difficult financial years, one of the things that as I look back on those days that I didn't realize at the time was that God never abandoned me. He never failed to provide what I needed. I thought he did, and I accused him of that because I was looking down the road too far. I was worried about how I was going to pay the bills next week or next month and how I was going to save for a house next year or five years down the road or retire. Jesus says, pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say our monthly bread, our weekly bread, or even our yearly bread. Give us daily bread bread for today. That's what God promises us, and that's really what we need. I want to encourage you just to make prayer uh, something bigger and bigger in these days. You have more time. Your family is together. Um, why not take some extra time and cry out to the Lord for your needs, for the needs of others, just special times of worship. Uh, pray for the world um, after this sermon and some singing that we did last week. Betty and I spent some extended time in prayer and it, it ranged around the world and so I want to encourage you uh, to do some, some of that in these un, unusual days. Well, after four months or so, we're going back to our study in the book of Luke, The Doctor's Cure. And if you know that Luke has 24 chapters, you'll be encouraged that maybe the end is, is in sight after all these years because we are in chapter 22 today. 
the title of the message is The Adversary's Play. And if you'd like to follow along with, ser along with sermon notes, uh, if, you go, if you're on the website where you're um, watching this uh, or listening to this next to the little microphone, uh, the little audio um, icon is a document icon, and you can click on that and uh, print it out and follow along. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Those are the words of Peter in his first letter. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Rosa Campbell grabbed the hand of her troubled grandson and began to pray. A lot of strange things had been happening in their house. And now that they were at the hospital, they continued. Her seven-year-old grandson had just put his hands around the neck of the nine-year-old grandson's hand she was now holding and growled at him, time to die. And it took all the power of several adults in the room to pull this boy off. As Rosa began to pray, a weird grin appeared on this grandson's face, the one whose hand she was holding. He walked backward to the nearby wall, walked up the side of the wall, and then walked across the ceiling, and then glided down on the other side of his grandmother, never ever letting go of her hand. Now, it was at that point that the nurse in the room and the social worker in the room who gave sworn testimony to this event fled from the room in terror. Uh, Rosa, her daughter Latoya, and her three children had about five months before rented a house in Gary, Indiana on Carolina Street. This is 2011. It became a demon house, a title of a 2018 documentary about the family's experiences in the house. Everything from footsteps coming up the basement stairs in the middle of the night, finding muddy boot prints on the floor in the morning, and then when they finally put a lock on the basement door, they would hear people pounding on that door in the middle of the night. A daughter's 12-year-old friend levitated several feet off the bed, passed out unconscious. All kinds of bizarre happenings. What sets this story apart from the tabloid garbage of rags like the National Enquirer is that it is backed up by 800 pages of documentation from credible witnesses including family physician, psychiatrist, a social worker, police, including the police chief, and that includes a number of policemen who refused after several visits to go back to the house at all. This story, which was put out by the Indy Star in uh, 2014, was the most widely read story they had ever published in, or in 115 years of publicity. These are the kinds of phenomenal happenings that too often people associate with the work of Satan. Weird, 
inexplicable and terrifying sights and sounds that are popularized by the horror factories in Hollywood that make things like Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The End of Days. And a lot of people think that if they believe in Satan, that's his M.O. This is how he primarily operates. Of course, 40% of Americans don't even believe that he exists. And interestingly enough, even 60% of those who say they're Christians, followers of Jesus, don't. Truth be told, Satan loves both misperceptions. After all, people who don't believe in him won't see him coming. And the special effects people who think that he does exclusively or mainly uh, these kinds of weird manifestations, such as the de- in, at the demon house, are, are, they're like the audience of an illusionist. That they're so busy watching for the eerie, scary stuff that they miss where his hands actually are and what they're actually up to. Luke chapter 22, first six verses is our text this morning. And this is the run-up now to Jesus, his betrayal, his trial, his execution, and ultimately his uh, resurrection. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, it's not quite that simple. The feast is an eight-day feast, the final day, day eight is the Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. And so he agreed, and he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so that they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Let's pray before we continue. Father, during these uh, moments this morning, I pray that you would guard us against fear about an admittedly powerful enemy, but also one who is impotent if you do not permit him his power. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Uh, that you have allowed him to operate, but he operates on your leash. And how many times you take what he is up to and you convert it to your glorious purposes of making your glory more widely known and also transforming people's lives. And I pray that this morning uh, we would learn from your spirit and from your word just who this being is, what he is up to, and how he works most frequently and most readily in people's lives so that we might have a battle plan of how to defeat him. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk this morning about Satan's plot, about his ploy when it came to Judas, and then talk about our fight against this wicked one Satan's plot if you look down through those six verses again and you kind of see this as a drama you see the main characters there all want Jesus dead the 
chief priests, the, the key leaders of the Jewish people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law would be the guys like me. They would teach the people the law of Moses and help them understand it and apply it. Uh, these guys looked at Jesus and he had become uh, more than a simple irritant. They, they now saw him as dangerous. Not only dangerous to their position, but dangerous to their stability. They had reached a kind of arrangement with Rome. Rome had essentially agreed to let the Jewish leaders run their people, give them a measure of freedom to run their affairs with the Jewish people, as long as they provided assurance to the Roman government that they could keep their people under control, that they could make sure the Jewish people would not rise up, not have any tax revolt or any kind of revolt. And, and they, that had worked fairly well for quite some time. All of a sudden, with Jesus in the picture, all, the, all of that's changed. The people are bypassing the Jewish leaders as their authority. They're listening to Jesus, and they're saying about him things like, he teaches like one who has authority, as in different from these other Jewish leaders' authority. And they're coming out into the wilderness to listen to him. Uh, they're being, they're really impressed by the healings that he's performed. Uh, the people, some of the people that he's cast demons out of, they know or they are related to. And, and just last week, they accompanied him in this um, messianic type of entrance into Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders couldn't miss the implications of that celebration and him coming into the gates of Jerusalem mounted on the well, what a king would ride on, a, a, a donkey. And so they are thinking that it's better off, as Caiaphas said, it's better off for one man to die than for the rest of the people to die. So they want him dead. And for some reason, one of Jesus' friends, will put in quotes, wants him dead. Judas, one of his 12 disciples. Not really sure why that is. We don't know if somehow... He signed on to something that he thought was going to turn out differently and it's not going the right direction or if Jesus was going one way and now in his mind he's going another way. For whatever reason, he also wants Jesus dead. But then Luke pulls back the curtains on the stage and shows who's behind the curtain, who's really controlling the people that are written into this play as the main characters. Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas into Judas Iscariot. And he went and offered to betray Jesus. Not really sure even why Satan wanted Jesus dead. One of the things that we're a little bit unclear about as we look at the scriptures is just the extent of Satan's knowledge. We know from Revelation 12, 12, for example, that Satan knows something about what the future holds. It says in there that he knows his time is short. So he knows that there's a timeline that God has set up, and he's working toward that. He's moving toward that. But we don't know if he perhaps failed, didn't understand or didn't know that God wanted Jesus to die, that it was his plan. In fact, if we would get to the book of Acts, Luke records in chapter 2, in chapter 3, and in chapter 4, 
that it was God's plan that Jesus died. Let me just read Acts chapter 2, verse 23. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. So this wasn't new, this wasn't new information. Even the most clear uh, prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, spells it out that this was, Jesus, this was God's plan. Uh, middle of verse 8. But he, talking about the Messiah, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal and put in a rich man's grave. Verse 10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief because his life is made an offering for sin. So either Satan didn't understand that was the plan, or he thought perhaps in some way that he could use Judas, he could enter Judas's life and control him like a puppet and perhaps foil God's plan to use Jesus to redeem his people. So this is Satan's plot. He is going to see that Jesus is killed. What was Satan's play? What was his play? So he entered into Judas, but what was he planning to do with Judas? Or how did he get access to Judas, perhaps is the bigger question. Judas was clearly targeted. If you're following along in the notes, Judas was targeted. And he was targeted because Judas loved money. Listen to what John says, one of his fellow disciples. Listen to what John says in John chapter 12, beginning of verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. Now this is right after a woman has anointed, Mary has anointed Jesus' feet with this very expensive perfume. And this was Judas's response. Why not take that perfume instead of wasting it in your feet, Jesus? We could sell that. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then John puts in a little editor's comment, verse 6. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Here's a man who had a pattern. He's, he's responsible to take care of the money. Right? That's his job. Uh, Thomas, you need some money for some expenses. You come see me. I've got the common money bag. I've got the common purse. Whenever anybody makes a donation to our ministry, it goes in the bag that I keep, and I'll make disbursements as needed. But I also help myself. And John's indicating that this was not an occasional thing where he's kind of slipped up and said, Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I, I confess my sin. Help me not to do that again. And then he slips up sometime. No, no, this seems to be a habit. He often stole some for himself. Look and keep that in mind as you look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This is still about... Uh, what Judas is doing in terms of trying to arrange, make arrangements with the Jewish leaders. Chapter 26, Matthew, um, verses 14 and 15. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, 
Mind you, he has not gone in voluntary services. He's asking, what will he do for him? He asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Do you, do you see what's going on? He's got a track record of stealing from the common purse. And now he is gone. He's been willing to sell out Jesus. We don't know why. Again, we don't know if he didn't like Jesus, if he didn't like the direction Jesus' ministry was going. All we know is that he wanted to sell him out, but he was only going to do it, appear, it appears to be, that he was only going to do it if he could get paid for it. So Judas was targeted because Judas loved money. Now, if you are like me and you like to read spy novels, you know that this is exactly how they function in the spy business. Whether it's CIA, MI6 in England, or FSB in Russia, the world's intelligence agents recruit people from other countries to work for them whether they're spies or people in the government. And they try to identify what it is that this other person wants most because that's going to be the bait. If they want money, that's going to be the bait. We'll pay you large sums of money to betray your country. If they want prestige, they might say, uh, the recruiter might say, we'll help you um, get a better job in your current uh, office. You'll move up the ranks. Or if you want to defect eventually and come work for us, we'll give you a nice prestigious job when you, when you get to us. Or if it's sex, we'll provide that for you. In other words, whatever it is you want most, we'll see that you get if we can get what we want. I'll get you what you want so you'll get me what I want. Now, let me just stop here. If, you, if you're a Christian, this is when, when, when Jesus offered himself to us on a cross and bled and died for us, he did so not just so you and I could get to heaven. He did so so that you and I would have nothing before him that would matter more than him. That in the gospel, Jesus was offering himself as our greatest, most glorious reward. And because we slip up when it comes to that, probably time and time again, at least I can, we too are targeted. We too are targeted. Satan makes a note every time we want what we shouldn't have. Or maybe we want something that it's okay for us to have, but we've got to have it. It's not, a, it's not a desire. It's not a wish. We crave it. And when we crave something more than Jesus, we become vulnerable. If we, if we crave undue wealth, I mean, we, we can desire to have as much as we possibly can so that we can uh, serve our families well, so that we can be generous with the Lord, uh, so that we can plan well for our future. But if we crave undue wealth, we become vulnerable. If we crave sex with someone who's not ours, we become vulnerable. 
if we crave a life that we know we'll never be able to afford, but because we want to have it so much, we can become vulnerable to being recruited for cheating, for stealing, for all kinds of things. If we desire approval more than respect, Satan is taking notes. He's making notes of what it might be that we might love more than Jesus. And that he then exploits that Achilles heel. And when he exploits that Achilles heel in our lives, sooner or later we wake up to a mountain of regret. And that was certainly the case for Judas. Again, Matthew chapter, we're 27 now, beginning of verse 3. So Judas got his money. He betrayed Jesus. Everybody had agreed, everybody who had agreed to a part of the bargain had fulfilled it. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. And so he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. Now, I'm not sure what his purpose was at this point. Maybe he thought if they take the money back that he would somehow be absolved of guilt. They didn't help him any. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem, verse 5. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the, temp in the temple and went out and hanged himself. Make no mistake about it. I don't care whether you are a Christian or an unbeliever. Sooner or later, if you make something more important in your life than Jesus, you will eventually wake up to a mountain of regret, have a hangover of regret. Well, if that's the case, what should our fight be like? What, what should, uh, what should, how do we address our vulnerabilities? What should Judas have done? And maybe to add, start the discussion there, we maybe should ask what what would we have done if we were Judas? And no doubt we would all of us say, I would never have betrayed the Lord. Never in a million years would I have done that. And yet every time I disobey him, I do betray him. Every time you refuse him, you betray him. Every time we deny him, we betray him. And every time we promote ourselves over him, we betray him. I went on Amazon.com this week and I put in books on spiritual warfare. And there are literally hundreds of titles that you can buy on spiritual warfare. One of the things that most of those books have in common, though, is that they're all about offense. They're all about, what do I do to attack Satan? What do I do to go after him? So, for example, I might be praying right now, God, purge this world of this killer virus. Or, Lord, bring peace to this world. And just as a side note, have any of you seen in any of the news headlines in recent weeks any report of any war. I, I don't know what's going on in Syria. That's the only major hotspot that I know about in the world right now. But I haven't heard anything about it. 
And I do know that about three weeks ago, a report came out that ISIS, the ISIS leadership had issued a communique to all of their personnel, all of their operatives in, in Western Europe, and urged them to leave. Isn't that interesting? For all the times that either reports have come out about terrorists trying to come up with a biological weapon, when it hits close to home, they run too. Or we might pray, Father, tear down that stronghold that has Marissa in bondage. So what I mean by offensive spiritual warfare is that we are going after Satan. But what about when Satan has come home to roost? What about when he's entered into a Judas? Coach Bear Bryant, the legendary football coach of Alabama, was the one who coined the very popular phrase these days, a cliche, that in athletics, offense wins games, but defense wins championships. And I think the same thing is true in spiritual warfare. When Satan is on the prowl, Defense wins championships. Here's what I mean. Judas was unconcerned about his sin. Here's a man who had a pattern in life of making bad choices when it came to money, of craving money more than, you know, the, the, the other disciples, when they came back to Jesus the first time, they said, even the demons submit to us. I would guess that Judas was thinking, well, that's great, but... I'm most concerned about how I can make money out of this gig. Judas seemed unconcerned about his sin. There's no evidence in the, in the gospel accounts that he ever repented about his thievery or about his money-grubbing ways. He was, and because of that, he was unaware of his vulnerability. You see, Satan's basic strategy is not to do the weird stuff that we heard about in a little house on Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. In fact, if you read the scriptures, you will not find hardly any of that kind of thing. A couple of demoniacs that live out in the cemetery and are naked and are violent is as close as you get. But we don't hear eerie music. We don't hear eerie noises. We, we just, we, what we see again and again and again and again in scripture is the tempter tempting people to sin. The tempter tempting people to sin. It begins in the opening pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. Satan shows up, Adam and Eve. He doesn't show up as a scary, demonic-looking, what we have in our, in our minds about a demonic-looking being. He shows up as one of the most beautiful creatures in the garden, at least back then, as a serpent, and he speaks very persuasively like a very skilled salesman. And they buy it. He tempts them to commit the only sin that they could possibly commit in that perfect garden. Fast forward to the opening pages of the New Testament. Again, Jesus out in the wilderness with Satan. And what's he tempting him to do? tempting him to turn over his power to Satan, tempting him to reject what Jesus, what his father had sent him here to do, to function as a man. 
and we go on through scripture, we see this again and again. We see it in our text this morning, Judas. His basic strategy is to tempt, and that includes us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, That is why when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. Well, if his basic strategy or his premier strategy is to tempt people to sin, what are the... Uh, what are the main areas of weakness that he pounces on? I'll give you three this morning from Scripture. One, he pounces on pride. He pounces on pride. What does the Old Testament say? That God gives, uh, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we can see him operating, we see God operating against pride, and we see Satan operating for pride. What took place, Genesis chapter 3, uh, was all about pride. Eve understood, or, or at least understood from Satan, that the fruit that was forbidden to her was the potential was for great power. That she could be like God. Pride. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, warns a church not to put a man who is a relatively new Christian, into a position in a local church as an elder. And Paul says the reason for that is that he might become conceited and fall into the trap of the devil. It's a really interesting passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, where Paul, who had gone into the third heaven either in a vision or actually been taken up into heaven, and he had seen things that he's not allowed to share with other people, he says, in order to keep him from being conceited, becoming conceited, becoming prideful about that, that a messenger from Satan was given to him, as we said a number of weeks ago, it was given to him by God. Because God opposed the proud, but I think Satan was involved in this because he was hoping he could get Paul to be proud. So there was this thorn in the flesh. One hand... Satan trying to use it to get Paul to be proud. On the other hand, God trying to use it to keep him from pride. So number one, his basic, his basic strategy is to tempt people to sin, and he pounces on pride. There's a vulnerability there that he thinks he can capitalize on and get us to sin. Secondly, he pounces on those who oppose truth. He pounces on those who oppose truth. And this is a warning, brothers and sisters, this is a grave, grave warning in our day, not just outside the church, but inside the church. First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. 2 Timothy 2, beginning of verse 25. Paul's saying to his young protege, Timothy, who is a, a young pastor in Ephesus, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Gently instruct those who oppose the, oppose the truth. These are people who are in the church. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. And if they learn the truth, then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. This is a key vulnerability that we're seeing in the church today where people are abandoning the truth that God has revealed to us. 
And because they are, they are creating a vulnerability which Satan is capitalizing on. And he calls it, verse 26, the devil's trap. They're being held captive by him to do whatever he wants, to promote that which is not true, uh, to dismiss that which is true. And thirdly, Satan pounces on those who love darkness. Satan pounces on those who love darkness. Acts chapter 26, when he is recounting his own testimony of salvation, he says this in the middle of verse 17. He's talking about uh, the words that Jesus said to him when he interrupted him on his uh, trip to Damascus. Jesus said to Paul, then Saul, Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles, meaning to be a missionary, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. I'm sending you to people so that you can open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Men love darkness, the scriptures say, because their deeds are evil. And when you and I flirt with wickedness, we inch our way back into the kingdom of darkness. Don't misunderstand me. That does not mean that we lose our salvation. Scripture doesn't say such a thing. But, but rather, we become vulnerable again to the enemy. And he starts to play us because we have now dabbled yet again into the realm of darkness. He pounces on those who love darkness. By the way, one of the greatest, I think, one of the greatest books regarding doing defensive spiritual warfare, I think, is C.S. Lewis's classic, um, The Screwtape Letters. I really commend that to you. So what should we do? We know, we know some of the problems and the vulnerabilities. What should we do? Well, the Bible tells us that Satan runs when we resist him. Look at James chapter 4, verse 7. And James chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, one of the things that seems to be true about Satan is that he is not a very hard worker. Um, I've noticed, uh, I don't think I have great Bible for this except the verse we're about to read. Um, but I have noticed in my own life that as years went by and I fought against a particular weakness in my life, that the more success I had, the, the, the less temptation appeared. And I think that's because Satan isn't willing to work that hard. And so if you repeatedly have victory against him in the areas that he tempts you, that he finally gives up and moves on to greener pastures. Um, I, I saw in, in my own life in an area years ago where I was, um, I never thought I would be tempted. Let's put it that way. Never thought I'd be, be tempted. And because of that, did not have my guard up. And when temptation came, I was absolutely floored why he knew I didn't have my guard up so he flanked me instead of dealing head-on with the areas that I had developed some strength in he he simply went for the weak uh, weak position this is what James says verse 7 of uh, James 4 so humble yourselves before God resist the devil and he will flee from you Satan runs when you resist him how do you resist him this is just basic sanctification 101 we resist him by confessing our sins and repenting, meaning turning from them. 
we confess our sins to God and repent of our sins. And pr praise God, there is absolute forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I understand that Jesus forgives our sins, all of them, in a moment when we come to him in repentance and faith and are born again. Past sins dealt with, present sins dealt with, future sins dealt with. But that does not mean that there's not going to be an estrangement between uh, myself and God as I drift again in, into sin and I need to I need to go back to the Lord and confess and repent and turn from them uh, so that our again that our bond is is reestablished that our fellowship is is solid and that these areas of vulnerability are dealt with when Martin Luther approached the door of the Wittenberg castle in 1517 and nailed the 95 theses on that door he began them with these words. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let me repeat that. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And you might feel like that sounds so defeating. I, I want to get beyond there. I want to go here. I want, I want to have this kind of victorious life. Brothers and sisters, there is a victorious life that is available to the believer. It is not, however, a life that is now free of sin and free of temptation. Satan would dearly love to have us believe that. Because when we believe that, we become vulnerable because we're not paying attention. We're not watching the flanks. We're not having ongoing confession of sin and repentance of sin. And so we are vulnerable. This is all of life. This is our sanctification ongoing. That doesn't mean that we can't have greater and greater victory. It just means that we never get to a point where we stop confessing. We never get to a point where we stop repenting. Uh, before I pray, one last thing. At the bottom of the notes uh, today, the sermon notes, I have included um, a number of questions that you and you and your family can work at together, or you might want to give the children the assignment. Look up these scriptures and uh, fill in the blanks. And there's, I think there's seven or eight questions there. And just an opportunity for you to get to know your enemy a little bit better from scripture. Um, the better we know an enemy, the more success we're going to have when it comes to combat with him. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the victory that we have over the enemy in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is already a defeated foe. I thank you that he is on a leash and that uh, the power of the spirit that lives within us is far greater than the power uh, that this wannabe God has as he roams to and fro. And I believe as the time, according to as what I see in the book of Revelation, as the time gets closer and closer uh, to Jesus' return, that the enemy uh, gets more and more active. His work becomes more and more um, difficult to distinguish from your work. And we'll need to have our blinders thoroughly off and our eyes wide open. And uh, we need to do that today, too, in preparation for those days. And so I prayed, Lord, that you would uh, give us a sense of encouragement, not discouragement, that we have to be vigilant and uh, be on guard, just like uh, even in peacetime, 
um, uh, country's military, our, our servicemen and women are, are on guard, even though we're not at war right now. They're, they're watching and they're making sure that, that we're safe. And we want to be on guard as well. We love you, Lord. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in these days. I think even the days at home, we might think, well, I'm kind of, uh, I'm not at work and I'm, I'm, I'm not at school and I'm not this and I'm not that. So I'm not as vulnerable to temptation. And Satan would dearly love for us to think that, that it's just our circumstances and our situations that creates the temptation problem. And we've forgotten the magnitude of the wickedness of our heart, which we take with us wherever we go. We love you and thank you for salvation in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.